Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. On a Sunday night, a week after my inauguration, I used the radio to tell you about the banking crisis and about the measures we were taking to meet it. In that way, I tried to make clear to the country various facts that might otherwise have been misunderstood, and in general, to provide a means of understanding which I believe did much to restore confidence. Tonight, eight weeks later, I come for the second time to give you my report in the same spirit and by the same means to tell you about what we have been doing and what we are planning to do. Two months ago, as you know, we were facing serious problems. The country was dying by inches. It was dying because trade and commerce had declined to dangerously low levels Prices for basic commodities were such as to destroy the value of the assets of national institutions, such as banks and savings banks and insurance companies and others. These institutions, because of their great needs, were foreclosing mortgages, they were calling loans, and they were refusing credit. Thus, there was actually in process of destruction the property of millions of people who had borrowed money on that property in terms of dollars which had had an entirely different value from the level of March 1933. That situation in that crisis did not call for any complicated consideration of economic panaceas or fancy plans. We were faced by a condition and not a theory. There were just two alternatives at that time. The first was to allow the foreclosures to continue credit to be withheld, money to go into hiding, thus forcing liquidation and bankruptcy of banks and railroads and insurance companies, and a recapitalizing of all business and all property on a lower level. That alternative meant a continuation of what is loosely called deflation, the net result of which would have been extraordinary hardship on all property owners and all bank depositors and incidentally, extraordinary hardships on all persons working for wages through an increase in unemployment and a further reduction of the wage scale. It is easy to see that the result of that course would have not only would have not only economic effects of a very serious nature, but social results also that might bring incalculable harm. Even before I was inaugurated, I came to the conclusion that such a policy was too much to ask the American people to bear. It involved not only a further loss of homes and farms and savings and wages, but also a loss of spiritual values, the loss of that sense of security for the present and the future that is so necessary to the peace and contentment of the individual and of his family. When you destroy those things, you find it difficult to establish confidence of any sort in the future. And it was clear that mere appeals coming out of Washington for more confidence and the mere lending of more money to shaky institutions could not stop that downward course. A prompt program applied as quickly as possible seemed to me not only justified, but imperative to our national security. So today I'm here.
talking with Sam Smith, who is a old school journalist and activist, and he has been writing about the Democratic Leadership Council for many years. And I invited him on the show today because I wanted to discuss a recent piece about how the Koch brothers helped to dismantle the Democratic Party. Welcome, Sam. Very glad to be with you. So I wanted to ask you, starting in around 1985, 1988, I believe, uh, Pamela Harriman, who was a fundraiser for the Democratic Party, started holding uh, some meetings and such with a group of conservative Democrats. Tell us a bit about who she was and who was present at these meetings and what and what their ultimate goal was for the party. Well, it was a it was a group of basically conservative Democrats who were uh, trying to uh, change the Democrats from what they had been under the, and under the New Deal and the Great Society into a what might be called Republican light. And um, they had uh, in the early 80s, late late 80s and early 90s, they had nearly 100 meetings uh, that were aimed at, at changing the nature of the party. And it included people like uh, Clark Clifford and Robert Strauss, and um, you could become a, if you paid $1,000, you could become a part of the sessions. And by the time it was over, uh, Pamela Harriman raised about $12 million for her kind of Democrats. Wow, that was, and back then, this is the late 80s, that was a considerable amount of money, $12 million. Yeah, yeah. And it was, uh, it was, it was something that it didn't get a lot of attention in the media. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, as I follow what's going on with the with the Trump regime, I am struck by how important that period was in terms of changing some of the nature of our politics. It because in part because money became so important. Mm-hmm. And uh, my thinking is that one reason for this, one terribly important reason for this, is the arrival of television. Mm-hmm. And television changed not only the way people looked at politicians and increasingly more uh, sort of blending it with show business, but also that if you wanted to make it in politics, you had to have a lot more money than you did before television. And just to give yeah. you a little idea of the difference between television and non-television, the first real example of this was Jack Kennedy's debate with Richard Nixon. And Jack Kennedy, the polls show that Jack Kennedy did much better with TV viewers, but Richard Nixon did better with radio viewers, listeners. A degree in anthropology. So um, is this something you've written about in academics as well? No, I'm not an academic. I just barely got my BA. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I tell people I graduated magnum cum probation. Um, there you go. But... Um, uh one of the reasons was that uh i was i'm i'm what they call an inductive thinker which is mm-hmm. reporters and and uh, detectives and scientists you right. start from the bottom and work up and an awful lot of college education involves theories which are never really tested and i had the extraordinary experience of going to harvard and uh, not doing very well at Harvard, but covering the Cambridge City Council at a time that Mayor Curley just died. And so I got to see what real politics was like, and the difference between the two stories was extraordinary. 
so um, Al Fromm, let's talk about Al Fromm for a second, because he was one of the starters of the Democratic Leadership Council in 1985. And I believe his sole purpose was pushing the Democratic Party to the right. So he approached, my understanding is he approached the Clintons and um, enlisted their help at that time. Can you walk us through the early days of the DLC? Well, um, basically, that's right. Uh, and and the thing was that Clinton, you see, he was he was governor of a uh, of a southern state, Arkansas, and you don't typically uh, find uh, the the North and uh, big money people interested in that. But he was a pretty smart dude, and he knew how to approach them, and he basically. Um, went along with their approach and they liked it very much um, in terms of making a real change in anything he was not going to continue in the great society or the new deal tradition didn't find out till later that one of the funders of the uh, democratic leadership was the cox brothers so you had, they also got money from Chevron, from Merck, from DuPont, from Microsoft, and from Philip Morris. Um, so that uh, this was uh, a very, very uh, big business operation. Right. And meanwhile, I was trying to cover the, the Arkansas story, and I found um, it extraordinary. And what really struck me as extraordinary was that it wasn't getting attention in the national media. Mm -hmm. um, and for yeah. example, uh, Arkansas was the uh, third, I think the third largest drug importation state in wow. uh, America. And um, the corruption was just was fascinating, but it was also quite unbelievable. Um, and uh, at one point, at one point, this is while uh, Clinton was governor. At one point, mm -hmm. I got a, a email complaining about something I'd written by, and the email had come from a guy named Billy Bear Bottoms, and I immediately <laughs> recognized the name. He was the pilot for Barry Seal, who was the largest drug importer in the country at the time, and he brought mm -hmm. his drugs mainly into Arkansas. And there was all that plus, you know, that that Bill Clinton was meant to come from Hope. You know, mm. Ar Hope, Arkansas. Yeah. And in fact, he moved there, moved from Hope when he was eight or nine and went to Little Rock. And the thing was that Little Rock was the uh, home, uh, was sort of a summer resort of the mafia. Right. And and his mother used to hang out with mafia types. And all that just got <laughs> missed in the story. Right. Um, right. And so we had this... Uh, and this is this is why we became so um, so sort of victimized by the people who had the money and the power to manipulate the story we saw on television. Right. So we had a, a, a conflation of corporate interest, corporate money, with our political system, sort of escalated in that period. And I think it's important to mention that in 1985, 1988, early 90s, the Koch brothers really weren't on anybody's radar the way they are now. So no, I think it's no. really important that folks consider this because I see constantly the arguments against the Koch uh, brothers 
when it comes to the GOP, but how many folks actually realize that they also get, gave money to the Democrats? So this is this is where we see this um, the notion of cor- corporate oligarchy isn't really interested in one party or the other. They're just interested in buying a politician that will push their agenda. Period. That's right. That's right. And and there's just um, there's just no uh, uh, comparison between the Democratic Party before the 1980s and the, and subsequently. And I'll, as right. an example, the one example I love is that um, Francis Perkins was Franklin Roosevelt's labor secretary. Mm-hmm. And um, he asked her to become secretary of labor. And she arrived with a piece of paper, which had a list of policy priorities she would pursue if he went along with them. And they included a 40-hour work week, a minimum wage, unemployment compensation, workman's compensation, abolition of child labor, um, unemployment relief, Social Security, and a universal health insurance. Now, this was in 1933. And if, if you talk about universal health insurance today, you're called a leftist. Well, you know, uh, taking a position which was respectable in 1933 is not exactly a radical position. <laughs> right, but it is to the corporatists. That's what they're fighting oh, against. Yes, they want yes. to launch it in a profiteering. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's um, I mean, basically, Bernie Sanders is a great society politician. A few hours ago, a few hours ago, I had the wonderful opportunity to visit the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Homestead. And I was happy to be there because in my view, FDR was one of the great presidents in the history of this country. He was a great president because he came into office in 1933 in a nation which was experiencing the worst depression in the history of our country. And he looked around him and he saw millions of people unemployed and hungry. He saw farmers losing their farms. He saw people struggling every single day to get the health care they needed or education for their kids. And he came forward And he said, you know what? We are going to transform the way government works in America. And that is what he did. Before his becoming president, before his becoming president, The general culture was, well, it is too bad that people sleep out on the street or that people are hungry or people die because they don't have access to health care. But it is not the government's responsibility to do anything about that. And he said, wrong. In a democratic, civilized society, we will do something about that. put together a number of programs which created many millions of jobs for people who needed those jobs. 
1944, in a speech which sadly has gotten very little attention, it was his State of the Union speech in 1944, President Roosevelt outlined what he called a second Bill of Rights. This is one of the most important speeches ever made by a president, in my view. In that remarkable speech, this is what Roosevelt stated, and I quote, we have come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Now, think about it for a second, because that is a very profound thought. And what he said is if people are working at two or three jobs, if people do not have adequate access to health care, if people are not able to get the education that they need, if people are living in poverty, are they really free people? There have been a number of studies, I don't know if you have seen them, that have come out recently which have shown that low-income people have a life expectancy significantly lower than wealthy people. In other words, poverty is a death sentence. So where does Wall Street fit in with the DLC? They now you mentioned that Merck, Chevron, some of these other major corporations were giving uh, were giving them money. How did Bill Clinton get and the Clintons get so tied, and the New Democrats get so tied to Wall Street? How did that happen? Well, I think that uh, um, you know Bill Clinton, the, the Clintons' goal in life was to get ahead, and um, mm-hmm. they would take whatever steps they needed to do that. Um, I think it's very interesting that the um, the archives of the Democratic Leadership Council are now belong to the Clinton Foundation, <laughs> which I think is a uh, <laughs> wow. which is a good sign, you know, that, that they wanted to get hold of those archives to make sure they mm-hmm. what got out was just what they wanted. Um, they scrubbed them. They, so that, yeah, there's a good chance of that. Now, another interesting thing about the Democratic Leadership Council is the somewhat uh, uh, not completely open role that it had with the rise of of Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, by that time, the Democratic Leadership Council had a bad enough reputation that that, uh, publicly Obama sort of shrugged them off, but they did play a role. You know, that's an interesting point you're making. I feel that they were fine with either Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. As long as they fit into their corporate agenda, they were they were going to be able to stand with them. Called their think tank at that time, um, ironically, Progressive Policy Institute, because there's nothing progressive right, about, right. <laughs> about them. I, was there also a connection with Third Way, which was Clinton's um, second neoliberal think tank? I, I can't tell you that. I don't know Okay, that. I'm just curious. I don't yeah. either. I couldn't find any information on that. Tell you another another effect is uh, this huge amount of corporate money and 
and things like Citizens United has had is it's really changed the culture of Capitol Hill. I was just talking with someone about this the other day. Um, I covered my first story on Capitol Hill back in 1957. And I saw a different sort of hill. It was, um, for example, uh, the wives of the senators all uh, tended, most of them belonged to a Red Cross group. And so they worked mm-hmm. with each other as volunteers. And that had a social effect um, on on the senators. Uh, today, you have, it's so sort of uh, unsocial that you have, uh, congressmen who actually sleep in their offices. They wow. don't even have an apartment in Washington, or they share an apartment space with a bunch of other um, congressmen of their ilk. Mm-hmm. So that you don't get um, that sort of um, cultural moderation you see get in politics where you had to be. Uh, I, I was once, I, I lived most of my life in D.C. And I was uh, on the first uh, group of advisory neighborhood commissioners, which was a new idea in Washington then. And at our first meeting, we passed two rules. One was that we were only going to deal with neighborhood issues. And the second was after every meeting, we would go to the zebra room. Mm. And and that last thing, which was to go to a bar after our meetings, was very important. Yeah. That actually makes sense to me because the social aspects uh, of politics, if we're going to be less toxic and less in our silos, is important. And I and I, you're right. If everybody's not engaging with anybody outside of the political sphere, all they see is this more extreme polarization between the two right. parties. Ugh, not a good thing. Um, I wanted to ask you, so at the time of Bill Clinton's election, the Democrats had an 82-seat lead in the House, which is pretty substantial. By the end of his term, the GOP had a nine-seat lead, and we see a similar thing that happened under the Obama administration. And uh, another example would be the Democrats at one time in in the mid-90s had 30 governorships, and now they're down to, I believe, 18. Is this a failure of the new Democrats? Is this a failure of them walking away from progressive politics and embracing the sort of third-way neoliberal ideals? In your opinion? Well, I, th- I think uh, there has been a real uh, change in that regard is that the uh, there's been a huge gap grown between, say, state and local government and the national government. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you, uh, you had under the Clinton administration, I was, there was a huge drop off in, in Democratic uh, representation in state legislatures and governmentship, governorships and things like that. And um, nobody even mentioned it. Right. But um, why, why do you think that is? I mean, in the recent, we can look at the data under Obama forward, and we've lost 1,100 seats across the board. This is a huge, yeah. huge drop. Obviously, there's a problem here. Well, one of the problems is that the media doesn't report it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the one of the things that uh, I think you know you hear there's a great deal of anger about the media, and one reason for that I think is that the national media has become extraordinarily self-centered. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it deals with the politicians and other reporters in Washington. But how many governors have you heard on CNN or MSNBC, right. let alone Fox News? How many mayors? How mm-hmm. many uh, leaders of religious organizations or leaders in academic communities? And uh, one of the things that's happened is that we have just uh, considered local activities to be uh, not important from a media point of view. Well, Mm -hmm. the problem with that is that most polls show that people like their local government the best than state government second and then the federal government the least. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's one of the great mistakes that the Democrats have made is not being... uh, not being better uh, towards local and state government. I mean, I, I remember when the when the highway, when the freeway program first started, you mm-hmm. drive along and you'd see a sign announcing the freeway. And on the left-hand bottom side, it would have uh, the president's name. And then on the right-hand side, it would have the name of the governor of the state, whether he was of the same party or not. Hmm. But it was that sort of thing, you know, that it was just natural that you paid attention. It was just natural. Absolutely. So it's interesting that um, you mentioned that was that was one thing that they walked away from was was the uh, 50s. In a a roundabout way, they walked away from the 50 state solution. The Democratic Party stopped supporting local state level um, elections. And I love the belief. I feel that part of the problem that we have now with the House of Representatives is that it has been gerrymandered. against the Democrats. That's, I think that's not up for debate, although the Democrats have also engaged in a form of gerrymandering. But I think part of the problem is they walked away from these state level and local elections, and it's the state Senate, the state Congress, that does the gerrymandering. And when you start to lose seats at that level, it affects the federal government in a massive way for this reason alone. So, oh, right, right. And it's a huge change. I mean, I just came across this that uh, back in uh, 1998, uh, well, uh, before they, when Clinton just came in, the Democrats held 1,500 seats uh, majority wow. in state bodies in 1990. As of 1998, that lead had shrunk to 288. <laughs> I mean, they, so it blows my mind, Sam, because clearly we're failing, and why is it that party leadership? I, I I can only I can only imagine that it's because of the corporate money because you still have a lot of lobbyists in inside the DNC leadership because they're, they 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 can see this data as clearly as we can yet they still cling to these same sort of neoliberal centrist ideals instead of getting behind a guy like Bernie Sanders when clearly the the course has changed. Is it yeah, the corporate it, money? Is that the real problem? That that. I think the real problem is that, uh, you know, corporatism is, is, is a fair definition of the beginning of fascism because yeah. fascism, like corporatism, involves the state of, uh, putting as its priority the service to the corporate interests. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's what we've come down to. Um, I think there's a lesson to be learned here because we're in a very dangerous time, and that is that the local remains very important, and we can have, uh, we can make an effect, even if we can't affect 
say, the Trump administration, people can affect their state legislatures, they can affect their local communities, and um, and this can be the beginning you build from the bottom up. But mm-hmm. there isn't a lot of uh, history of this uh, for, say, millennials. So they may not be aware that the that it's not a waste of time uh, to do this. I mean, that's what the right. civil rights movement was about. Yeah, the other thing that I think gets missed is that um, one of the best ways to organize is to organize by issues. Mm-hmm. And and because what happens with the, when you organize by issues is you find yourself in alliances you weren't expecting. Uh, one of the first um, big campaigns I got involved in was an anti-freeway fight in Washington, which eventually stopped more freeways than any other city in the country. And you know how it started? It started by white and black middle class homeowners who were having a uh, freeway come, scheduled mm. to go through their neighborhood. And th- that sort of issue can bring people together. I remember going to a rally in which there was a lawyer in a striped, black striped suit. His name was Grosvenor Chapman III, and he was <laughs> one of the speakers. And the other was a guy, Reginald Booker, from a radical black group. And I looked up there and I said, we're going to win this battle. And we did. Mm, which is brilliant. We're, I think there's a real, um, the, the thing is that identity politics has gotten so much strength that people forget that, that there aren't enough of your identity to make it work that way. That's right. And, you, and you've well, got to find. Well, it's sort of been weaponized by the Clintons, in my opinion. Yeah. I, you know, people coalesce around ideas, and I think you're right on this, um, more than they coalesce around anything. And right. they sort of weaponized that because it suited their, you know, the Clintons wanted to win and they'll win at any cost. And, you know, like I would see these arguments online about, you know, Hillary trying to back away from the super predator comments of uh, the 1990, Bill's 1994 crime bill. And it, would, it always blew my mind because they would say, Bernie's a racist, he voted on the crime bill. But these are the same folks that would not acquiesce to the fact that it was the Clinton's crime crime bill to begin with. So it's like, what are you talking about? They are yeah. very, they are very, um, corporates are very threatened by this idea of us having solidarity as, as, as a class, because there's far more poor white folk and far more poor black folk banded together that can infect change. That's than right. there are if they keep us in our separate silos. So it, it definitely mm-hmm. does not work to their benefit. I wanted to ask you, I was um, I was seeing that you reported in 1964 uh, on the Mississippi Freedom Summer, which is a really important thing that happened. Can you talk a little bit about that? It was 1964. African Americans had been given the right to vote almost 100 years earlier yet fewer than 7% had registered, and it was no wonder. You'd be fired from your job if you even tried to go down and register to vote. If you had a loan, any kind of loan, they would cut your loan. They would publish your name in the paper. Then there was something called the registrar who would then make you take a test, and inevitably, if you're African-American, you fail. You didn't write anything in there. You didn't pass it. Stanley Nelson's new film is a deep and at times unsettling look at the brave women and men who fought for voting rights just 50 years ago. 
You have your certificate showing that you are a registered voter. Civil rights organizers in Mississippi had been fighting an uphill battle to register African Americans. We must be stronger than the enemy. They needed help from outside the state and looked north. They invited 700 volunteers, mainly white college students. Students who had no idea what they would be getting into. One of the things that surprised me is there was tension. Part of the frustration with the organizers was trying to say, this is what it's going to be like down there. They could see that the kids didn't really understand it. You're going to wind up in jail. I suggest we be a little more serious about this thing. But that would quickly and tragically change. They went missing on the first day of Freedom Summer, the very first day. On June 21st, 1964, three young activists, Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner from New York and James Cheney from Mississippi, vanished. The people who understood Mississippi knew that they were never going to be found alive. The bodies not discovered for six months. Those murders dramatized in the movie Mississippi Burning. It put this kind of you know, shadow over the whole summer. For his film, Nelson shares the real-life stories of the once young freedom fighters who lived in fear every day. They put this noose over my head, and they, it's attached to a long rope. They jumped back into the car, and I just saw myself being dragged to death. It wasn't just intimidation. They were killing people. One of the, the, the terms that people always use for, for what was happening in Mississippi was terrorism. That, you know, they were being terrorized. After Freedom Summer, after those murders, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act, which banned discrimination in voter registration. A uh, guy who was, who was down there active in the night. And I think I, what I did was in 65, I went down to a civil rights hearing in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and it was extraordinary, mm. uh, the stories that you heard. And I got to say that, that until recently, I said, for all our faults, we're making headway, and now I don't feel that way anymore. The, the uh, amount of sort of uh, displays of ethnic prejudice uh, just it just takes me back 50 years. And yeah, uh, the rise of the neo Nazis is, is really just yeah. It's not just the neo Nazis. It's things like the uh, police uh, beating up on people, or oh yeah, or uh, some of these videos that you see now, on, which are pretty grim. Uh, now I don't blame this all on Trump. I think there are all sorts of things that we don't pay enough attention to is like uh, not teaching mm -hmm. history and civics as much in, in schools. And um, also, I think that we we tend to oversimplify uh, uh, ethnic issues. Uh, I lived most of my life in Washington. And one of the things I learned was that one of the reasons that Washington did fairly well on, on ethnic issues was because it was so complex. And mm -hmm. we, don't, we don't teach ethnic complexity. <laughs> right. And so we, we make it, we make it uh, absurdly simple. Mm -hmm. And from a, from a scientific point of view, uh, 
uh, race is not a scientific concept. In fact, it, it has its origins in, in, in basically a racist, uh, as a racist idea. Would you um, believe that's what I wrote my MA thesis paper on? Is that <laughs> right? <laughs> is not. that right? Well, that's, that's that great. Right. <laughs> what did you major in? Um, my master's is in the logic and philosophy of science. But I wrote uh -huh. about race as not being a, it, it started in by, as a biological taxa to support colonialism and racism in the 18th century. So you're, you're completely spot on. And we've now decoded the human genome and we know it's uh, completely ridiculous. But yeah, 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 I wrote about that and the political and social um, consequences of, of that and, and well, the scientific racism. That's terrific. That's terrific. Because, uh, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I've used the term ethnic. Uh, yeah, no, I did. I, so I knew you, that was your anthrop anthropology degree speaking. <laughs> yeah, that is, because basically you're talking about cultural differences. And, yeah, that's um, right. and it's something which, which, uh, one of the things that sort of stunned me about what's going on now is having lived most of my life. I mean, at one point there were, uh, Washington, D.C. was 70% black. Mm -hmm. And, um, the thing was that, uh, the culture was just so different and that I think I became a little bit naive about the rest of the country. In California, it's the same thing. You, you do, you do sort of see, uh, because the differences are quite immense. If you are in an area where it's very much multicultural and then you go to areas of the country where that's not the case, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what? <laughs> this isn't yeah. normal. Like, whoa. Yeah, it's, uh, our country is large, and we have very different cultures in each section of um, of the United States. It's almost as if it's it's like Europe, even though Europe is different countries. California and Alabama are markedly different in the same way that France and Portugal would be. You know. Right. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you, I have a big belief, and I'm wondering your opinion on this. I have a big belief that what happened between Wallace, Henry Wallace and Truman at the uh, DNC convention uh, really sort of changed the course of the Democratic Party. I think that, um, and it also I feel has similar reverberations with the Bernie Sanders um, um, situation. I hear you had the DNC step in, put their thumb on the scale, because they didn't want Wallace to, be, to remain in that position. And I think, well... If Wallace had remained the vice president and Truman had not taken that position, when FDR passed away, Henry Wallace would have been president. And how much different this country would look, because Truman was definitely more of a corporatist, in my opinion. About the convention where Henry Wallace loses the vice presidency. Um, well, as we said in the last segment, you'll see in the series, it's just like a coup in yeah. a sense. Uh, and in fact, Edwin Pauley, the Democratic Party treasurer, referred to it as Pauley's coup. <laughs> Pauley's an important figure. He went into politics, a California oil millionaire who went into politics, he said, when he realized it was cheaper to elect the new Congress than to buy up the old one. And so he later gets indicted, he's corrupt, and he's the treasurer of the Democratic Party. The chair of the Democratic Party is Bob Hannigan. And the two of them worked together. Uh, Pendergast, who was Truman's initial sponsor, was in federal prison in Kansas City in 1940 when Truman was up for re-election. Roosevelt refused to support him and endorse him. Rose Truman was coming in third in that election, and he turned to Hannigan, who was the head of the St. Louis machine, the Hannigan-Dickman machine around St. Louis. And Hannigan throws his support to Truman, who barely pulls out that election in 1940. He was not very popular. 
In fact, most of the senators shunned him after his first term. They referred to him as a senator from Pendergast and thought of him as a corrupt hack. It's during the second term where he begins to develop a national reputation. But, Stu but Truman is now a stellar figure at that point, which is why he had so little support. So, so let's go back to this moment. Yeah. Roosevelt says yes to Truman knowing, knowing he's a hack. He, said, he, he gives in to these party bosses. He, but there's another step to it. We talked a lot about this thing about Roosevelt in the last segment, mm -hmm. so I won't go over that again. But once this coup takes place, it's clear the majority of the party wants Wallace. Yes. They manipulate the process to force, uh, to a, in, in a way that gives them time to rally the votes for Truman. Yes. Um, they essentially steal it from Wallace, but then once they do, Wallace says, okay, I accept this. And then the trade unions, who one would think were a much more powerful force at, at the time. They were a, a powerful force. Yes. They accept it too. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I'd be curious. Uh, I, no, I don't have a... Uh, I, I think that um, one, of the, one of the problems with politicians is they don't always say in the same place. That can be good and it can be bad. Um, but, for example, in Lyndon Johnson's situation, it was good. Mm -hmm. I mean, it became much more progressive uh, as he gained power, which is sort of rare. Um, but uh, but I'm, not, I'm not familiar enough with that to, to say anything that would be worthwhile. <laughs> okay, so basically what had happened is the first vote count, delegate vote count, had Wallace maintaining his position as vice president. And they put their thumb on the scale and forced the second vote count. And it went through several machinations of this, but Truman mm -hmm. ended up with the nomination. So, and this was coming straight from the DNC leadership. Um, so yeah. I just, I had been reminded of that situation when I was watching this with uh, this last 2016 election cycle with the super delegates and all these other machinations that were definitely put in place to um, sort of stop or thwart progressive popular movements and i think um you know i think it's one of the the main problems the democrat party has at this point they're not listening to their base which is much more progressive and they're not listening to the independents which from which uh compose what 42 percent of the country now and we cannot win elections unless we make appeals to the left-leaning independents the green party members the dsa members you know this is what an alliance right. needs to look like you know that's right Mm -hmm. uh, so, very definitely, and and it's a it's a matter of uh, one of the problems I think we have is that politics has become a religion, mm -hmm. and so people look at it in terms of their own salvation rather than the effect it has on other people. Right, right. And uh, my whole experience was well, beginning with the fact that I. I was one of six children, so I learned very in, early in life that people didn't agree with me, and um, <laughs> and that that gives you a different approach to things. Uh, and then I had a father who worked in the New Deal, and I covered the Great Society, and I I uh, am conscious of things that uh, a lot of people aren't because our language has gotten so. Um, centered on other things and it's one of the mm -hmm. problems uh, with our society today is that we don't have enough variety in ideas 
I mean, for example, when was the last time you heard anybody talk about ways in which we can make the federal government and local governments work better together? Yeah, never. Yeah. <laughs> never. It's obviously not on anybody's radar because it doesn't. Again, no, it's it doesn't not on anybody's corporate. radar, but but it's uh, uh, it's a very essential issue because people's mm -hmm. whole attitudes change if if uh, you have a better relationship between state and local and federal governments. Yeah, I don't disagree, Sam. So how has activism changed through the course of your career? You're talking, you talk about covering uh, the Great Society. How, how, was, how, was, how was it that all of those things were able to be passed back then? And we've lost so much ground on this. And how has activism changed in the sense that we can go back to maybe pushing stronger for more of this agenda we want to pass, it, you know, bring back? Well, I think, I think it has a lot to do with, like I say, with, with politics becoming a religion and activism becoming a religion. And mm -hmm. it's very hard to come up with good ideas if you are uh, too sure of yourself. You have to sort of look to realize that the world is very varied, that people have different approaches. Uh, you know, how are you going to get your, uh, your grandmother out to the pole? Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I learned was that one of the reasons you wanted to go door to door in an election was that you might meet a spouse who didn't share the view of his or her spouse. Uh, and of course, Having been involved in the civil rights movement, I'm conscious of the fact that people do change, and also the anti-war movement. People do mm -hmm. change over time, and we sort of have an assumption, for example, that poor whites won't change their view of Trump. Right. Well, that's, that's um, you know, some of them voted Democratic in when they were younger, so they do change. And so then the question is, how do you find... Uh, things that can change people's minds. And that's where I get back to this issue, because I do feel that in the 60s, we were much more issue-oriented. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, how do you build an alliance of people across uh, ethnic and gender uh, lines and um, come up some with something that the big guys can't, can't deal with? And, and what I say to these days to people is, you know, uh, condemn, condemn the big guys, but just convert the little ones. I think that's good advice. So you mentioned the something that I think is very much true. A lot of the baby boomers who at one time were quite progressive are not any longer. They are some of the most um, selfish uh, non-progressive voters out there. What changed that group? What happened? I don't have an answer to that. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, these, these, uh, I, I, I come from a generation that no one even pays any attention to. <laughs> so, I'm paying attention. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but the, yeah. uh, but I, so I don't know the answer to to the questions about the boomers. I do think that um, one of the tricks is that when things start to go bad, 
it's how you approach them that can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and there was sort of an in, instinctive uh, ability to do that. And, and I'll tell you, uh, Martin Luther King told his aides, he said, we have to remember that someday uh, the people we are fighting, uh, many of them will be our friends. Mm-hmm. And it, that's sort of a first basic principle of activism is that you're going to win. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're going to win, you're going to change people's minds. Uh, you know, Sam, that is such a valid point. And I wanted to uh, maybe take that a step further because you, you did bring up this idea that how do we get grandma to the polls? How do we get anybody to the polls? I see this, this uh, sort of attitude out there coming from the centrist neoliberal group that they think that it's, it's, a, it's a deadly combination of hubris, like why I should have won, isn't it obvious? Isn't, isn't my superiority sort of self-evident? I don't have to do anything to earn votes. And vote shaming, where they are literally blaming the loss of elections on the voters and not the flawed candidates. And I'm very disturbed by this because you can bully voters, all you potential voters, all you want. But you know where they're going to tell you what they really think? In the voting booth when the curtain is closed and nobody can say anything to them. And we have right. seen this time and time again. So when will they stop doing this? Because we are not winning elections by bullying these folks and saying, isn't it self-evident that I'm superior? We have to earn these votes. Yeah, I think I think that, that that's true. I, the, the, the problem is is that an awful lot of people don't want to deal with problems. Yes. <laughs> so they come up with an easy answer. And oh, God, there you know, isn't, it's true. There isn't an easy answer. I mean, like one of the things I found very frustrating as a, a member of the Advisory Neighborhood Commission was that I couldn't go door to door in apartment houses. Mm. You know. Yeah, that's a problem. And, and uh, that so, sort of thing doesn't get discussed very much. But but part of the part of the thing is you want to go back and you want to figure out how to do it. Um, go back and look at the way politicians used to do it in the late 19th century for early 20th century because mm-hmm. they didn't have television. They didn't have the Citizens United. Right. And uh, one of the points I make to folks today is that one of the best things a minority can do in this country is to lead the majority. Mm-hmm. And uh, a good example is how Jews and the Irish have functioned in our society, mm-hmm. and it's basically in part by by providing leadership to the rest of the community. And there was an interesting there was an uh, interesting book about Chicago politics that I loved, which mentioned that um, a Lithuanian wouldn't vote for a Pole, a German wouldn't vote for an Italian, but all four of them would vote for an Irishman. <laughs> and the Interesting thing about that is when you start to think, well, why was that true? Well, one reason was there were Irish bars and people mm-hmm. of different cultures came there. And so that the the Irish gained a reputation as sort of cultural mediators. This is and, true. I mean, look at the uh, St. Patrick's Day. We all love to yeah. go out and drink green beer on St. Patrick's Day. And you're right. At one time, Irish folk were very much prejudiced against. Yeah, very much. And, and uh, 
So that I think there is a, um, and and also I think that that um, you know that someone like Martin Luther King had a tremendous effect on whites, including mm-hmm. myself. That's right. Um, and the interesting thing about it was that I'd gone to a Quaker school in Philadelphia, and I was a little cynical about pacifism. And when I read uh, Martin Luther King's book in college, Stride Towards Freedom, one of the things it did for me was to give me a sort of a, a, a manly approach to uh, being peaceful. Hmm. And so that he spoke to me, not as uh, a black to black, but as a, uh, you know, as on a whole nother issue. And uh, I became an admirer of his. And before long, I was a member of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. That was one of the more, that wasn't Martin Luther King's group, but it was one of the uh, more radical ones. And um, I got involved in it because um, I wrote an article. Of, I took part in a bus boycott. They were raising the fares, I think, 25 cents, and which was a lot in those days. And we kept 100,000 people off the buses that day by just having people go out and drive them, as I did. I think I took 75 people along bus routes that day. And then I wrote an article about it. Well, the guy who um, who was running SNCC at the time uh, came over to my apartment because he was looking for somebody, and particularly a white guy, to help him with media. And uh, that was, guy whose name was uh, Marion Barry, who later, mm. became, later became mayor of Washington. Right. So um, I became um, his his media guy for a while. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so speaking of uh, radical activism, so to speak, quote, my using my scare quotes right now, did you ever cover, cover any of the Weatherman Underground escapades? Uh, no, I didn't get into that. Okay. Curious about that. Um, I wanted to ask you about your new book, Why Bother? It was chosen by the Working Access as one of their uh, books of the month. Can you walk us through what this book is about? Well, it was a book about uh, dealing with something which had come up in my life all time and still does, which is, uh, as I'm working away, I say, why am I bothering with this? Yeah. <laughs> and... And it's something which I think is a very normal reaction, and I, I tried to uh, come up with some answers. Um, I realized in, in retrospect, because that book did come out some time ago, that um, that I was very much influenced by one thing was existentialism, and the other was my own Quaker education, which, is, um, which involves sort of the... Um, importance of doing things regardless of the outcome as one existentialist put it uh even a condemned man has a choice of how to approach the gallows Mm. and if you see your life as a statement of what you can do whether it's successful or not and you just do it uh, that's a different approach than a lot of people take because they say, well, i got to see whether this is going to work or not. And very, very seldom do you actually know. <laughs> right. 
which is true. As activists, I sometimes feel like we get discouraged because there's the, we're standing in front of a dam and we're putting and the dam's leaking and we're just putting pebbles into the leaks. And the minute we put one pebble in, two more spring over on the other side. And so you can get yeah. to a point where you're frustrated and discouraged, but we can't give up the fight. That's what they want. They want us to stop fighting. They they know if we get too tired and we can't do battle anymore, that they're ultimately going. The corporate also oligarch is ultimately going to win the day. So we this yeah. is um, yeah. I. I appreciate that concept, and I'm glad that Working Assets was sort of promoting it because we, as activists, we all need to have uh, some level of encouragement and some idea of why we're doing what we're doing if we're going to ultimately just fail every time. Because we're, we're starting to actually see a difference. I mean, prior to 2016, you could never discuss socialism in the United States without having the word entirely weaponized. And, um, and I see that yeah. changing. I see the young millennial, millennials hear this word, and they don't have this sort of, like, red scare propaganda attached to it they understand yeah. that it might be beneficial that's right and uh just one of the like i said one of the influences on me was was quakerism which i went to a quaker high school and the thing about the quakers is they were about the same number back in the 18th century as they were in when i was going to school uh, but every major change in society yeah, they had been involved in, uh, yeah. and and that's a um, you know you you can't you can't tell whether you're going to be the winner. It's not a competitive thing. No. It's, and and the more people who are out there just expressing decency, uh, then it can really make a difference. I just saw the movie on, on uh, Mr. Rogers. Have you seen that? I have not. It's on my watch list on Netflix, though. <laughs> was right. it good? Oh, it was terrific. And what, what, about two-thirds into the movie, I said to myself, that's the problem. We're living in Mr. Trump's neighborhood now. <laughs> yeah. And the thing was that this one guy you know, redefine things so effectively for so many people, so many young people, little children. Uh, and it, you see that and it shows you what can happen. You can't do it alone. And uh, you can't do it if you're too sure of what you're doing is right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Hubris is a, has become a real problem out there. And it's, I don't think people realize what a turnoff it is to somebody else. But, you know, and at the end of the day, the, the point is to bring people to your side of, to, to win the argument, to win the debate. That's right. And you're That's not right. going to do that if you're just coming across as being um, just full of hubris. That's right. And you can, it's, uh, it, doesn't mean that you always get along with people, but you can keep a relationship. I mean, for example, when when I, I supported Marion Barry in his first run for mayor and for his second run, and then we sort of fell apart. And my uh, my history with him was sort of in several stages. In the first, he would describe me as one of the first white guys who'd have anything to do with him. Uh, a couple of decades later, he told a reporter friend of mine, uh, Sam's a cynical cat which to me was one of the great honors I've ever gotten to have Marion Barry say that about you. Right, uh, right. And, 
And then uh, the third, a couple of decades after that, he runs into my wife somewhere and he says, where is that son of a bitch? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually funny. I, so now you are the publisher of a great website, uh, a blog called The Progressive Review. When did you start publishing The Progressive Review? I believe that you had The Idler before that. Is that correct? Yeah, I've I've had a really sort of, got involved in alternative journalism right at the start. Um, and I started something called The Idler for a while. And then I uh, was living on Capitol Hill. And um, there was a minister who had been trained by the activist all Saul Alinsky, and he was organizing our neighborhood. And he said, you know, we need to have a, um, a neighborhood newspaper. So mm. back in the early 60s, I started one. Uh, Capital East Gazette, and it didn't last too long because we had two of the four riot areas in D.C. were in our circulation area, mm-hmm. and um, it was a uh, it was an unbelievable time. But but then that evolved into the D.C. Gazette, and then uh, into the Progressive Review. But the uh, so what- Oh, if you wanted to bring up one of your most favorite um, articles that you've ever written, which would it be? <laughs> Too many? <laughs> uh, that's that's a little hard for me. <laughs> okay. I did, however, uh, I, I had some uh, young folks in their 30s who are now living on the hill, Capitol Hill. And so I did pull out for them um, my article on the riot. Mm. And uh, it was such an extraordinary, I mean, it was one of those extraordinary moments when you have, you know, when the whole streets are burning five blocks from your house. And, and um, for our younger a, audience members, can you um, walk us through what the riots are that you're talking about? So I, I've Well, these were the riots in April, in D.C. in April of 68. There were, there were urban riots all over the country. Mm-hmm. And it was... Um, in the wake of uh, Martin Luther King's death. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and Russ Hodge in Memphis, Tennessee, Dan Rather in New York, Bernard Kalb in Saigon, Marvin Kalb in Wellington, New Zealand, and Bert Quint in Quezon, South Vietnam. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen running from the scene. Officers also reportedly chased and fired on a radio-equipped car containing two white men. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. Police, who have been keeping a close watch over the Nobel Peace Prize winner because of Memphis' turbulent racial situation, were on the scene almost immediately. They rushed the 39-year-old Negro leader to a hospital where he died of a bullet wound in the neck. Police said they found a high-powered hunting rifle about a block from the hotel, but it was not immediately identified as the murder weapon. Mayor Henry Loeb has reinstated the dusk-to-dawn curfew he imposed on the city last week when a march led by Dr. King erupted in violence. Governor Buford Ellington has called out 4,000 National Guardsmen. 
And police report that the murder has touched off sporadic acts of violence in a Negro section of the city. In a nationwide television address, President Johnson expressed the nation's shock. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. Dr. King had returned to Memphis only yesterday, determined to prove that he could lead a peaceful mass march in support of striking sanitation workers, most of whom are Negroes. Dr. King had this to say last night about the situation in Memphis. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly, somewhere I read, of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. There was shock in Harlem tonight when word of Dr. King's murder reached the nation's largest Negro community. Men, women, and children poured into the streets. They appeared dazed. Many were crying. A young Negro said, Dr. King didn't really have to go back to Memphis. Maybe he wanted to prove something. And um, the thing about D.C. was that, like everything else, things were a little bit different. Uh, at one point, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, called our mayor and told him he had to come to see him. So Mayor Washington went to see um, J. Edgar Hoover, and J. Edgar Hoover said, you have to start shooting people. And the mayor, who was black, said to the head of the FBI, says, you can rebuild buildings, but you can't rebuild people. And mm -hmm. he refused. And we only lost 10 lives in those riots, but they did have an extraordinary effect on the city. Talk a little bit about the context of uh, the other social context that were surrounding us. We were sort of in a, a, a transitional spot in the country. Yeah, uh, I mean, the thing was that you had a, a period of great ethnic conflict going on. Mm -hmm. And you had a lot of people who were suffering very much. And who were very angry, and there was very little expression for it. And I think the King killing was was very, very dramatically important because King was that element of hope that was there. And it's one of the things that you sometimes forget, but if you can find a way to provide hope, then you can keep people going who might not right. otherwise do it. And so when That's he was right. killed in Washington, uh, there was just, it just didn't seem like there was any good answer. Mm. And um, the, uh, the, our, our uh, neighborhood, I mean, for example, I had been working with a group that was trying to get the white businessmen on H Street, which was a major riot strip, and uh, the blacks in the community together working on common issues. And we actually had gotten a group together. It was in March of 1968, but of course the riots 
ended that. Mm. Did you attend, were you able to attend any of the MLK marches in the 60s? Uh, I covered uh, quite a few marches. I can't remember them all now. Uh, mm -hmm. One one ironic problem I had was that I was uh, I was 30 in 1967, which was the height of the Vietnam War. And you weren't meant to trust anyone over 30 back in those days. Mm -hmm. And um, I was a big guy. <laughs> and I was sitting down by the Lincoln Memorial with my wife. And there next to me was a guy with love beads and long hair. And he turns to me and says, CIA? And I said, no. <laughs> says, FBI? And I said, no. He said, you smoke much? And I said, half and half pipe tobacco all day long. And he said, solid, and gave me his love beads. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> uh, so if you were to give any advice to the young activists today, the young millennials that are coming up and trying to change the country, what advice would that be? Well, I I would say to, to look at something that seems like it might work and help out in it. And um, remember that you're trying to change people's minds. You're mm -hmm. not trying to prove how right you are. Mm. And that people are not all, they're not all going to agree with you. Um and the thing is that you may find they'll agree on some things, but not on others. Uh, so it's a complex problem. And, and uh, if people didn't change their minds, we wouldn't have politics. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, you know, Bernie got blasted for saying this, but I think that his point was pretty salient, actually. Not everybody that voted for Donald Trump was a racist and that's absolutely true now is the reverse true no i think every racist in the country absolutely did vote for donald trump however there is that section that you're discussing that voted for him because they believed in his lies in regards to economic policy in regards to uh, draining the swamp except you can go down the list you know yeah. were yeah. they naive in that belief yes we could make maybe make that mm -hmm. make that argument but but the idea that those those poor disenfranchised folks can't be changed, I think is wrong. And I, I think I think you're right on that. And I think I'm seeing, interestingly enough, in the data, you are now seeing a plurality of uh, self-identified Republicans saying they support Medicare for all, which is something I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. So Right, right. And then the other thing is you get people thinking, you come up, back, back in the uh, Great Recession, for example, I proposed something which I think could have been a, a great issue, but never got anywhere. And that was mm -hmm. a shared equity program where the federal government would come in and help people who were about to be foreclosed by buying a share of their house mm. and uh, or assuming a share of their house. And the beauty of that would be that the government would probably make money out of it over time. Mm -hmm. um, so there are, there are all sorts of solutions out there that, that uh, don't even get to the table because uh, we're, we've, we've gotten sort of 
browbeaten and just to think about things in in a few small ways. Right, right. Or in, in a way and, that only yeah. serves the Wall Street banks. Yeah, and I think there's one other thing which um, I I had over the years uh, along with made uh, parallels between what had happened in Nazi Germany and what has happened in fascism um, with what was going on in the United States. But more recently, I began to think, well, there's a more local uh, simile we could use, and that is the Confederacy. And I think that really, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing is what might be called a new Confederacy. Oh yeah, and and the thing is about the about the South uh, was that the plantation owners, which today are corporations, right, <laughs> large corporations, mm-hmm. uh, part of their game was to convince their white lower income people around them that it was it was the blacks who were their problems. Right, right, and that's still going on today. I mean, that's absolutely, oh, absolutely. what what uh, what Donald Trump is up to. Absolutely, uh, and um, then of course you had uh, uh, all sorts of problems. One of one of which is that was the concept that's been called hegemonic liberty, which is the more power you have, the more liberty you have, mm-hmm. and that's very much a a theme of, say, someone like Trump, but it also has a, a strong Southern uh, tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, our militarism is is something which is biased towards the South because the South has always been more militaristic. Yep. And um, so that's just, if you're looking for a metaphor, a new metaphor, I think the new Confederacy is a good one. I think that's a great metaphor, new Confederacy. I which also sort of makes me think about uh, Southern strategy as well. I mean, we, you know, the right is not the only folks that are guilty of doing this. Um, I would say the Clintons did it to win their elections in the 90s as well. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's absolutely true. In fact, I think that the Clintons provided something of a model. Uh, and there's another factor which which I don't think it, we're getting enough uh, attention, and that is that we we seem to feel that it's okay that if people look good on television, that explains them, and it's almost like yeah. show business is taking over politics. I call uh, it newsertainment. <laughs> yeah, news attainment. Yeah, that's right. And so that you you end up with a um, a fantasy which is based on what we see on television. And in trying to figure out, one of the things that really has troubled me is how come I learned as a teenager to avoid someone like Donald Trump? Yeah. And part of it was that I went to high school before television had become important. But the other thing that just occurred to me the other day was that I read lots and lots of comic books. Mm. And I realized that Donald Trump was one of the bad guys in the comic books. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So it was just built into my nature that he didn't mess around with somebody like that. 
Right, right. So that's a that's a nice little plug for comic books. <laughs> Somebody should take up that mantle and make a Trump comic book, a political parody. Uh, because he, he he's a reality. You're right. He's a reality TV star. He is not the successful businessman that that uh, has been sort of painted by media. He's what? How many times has he filed bankruptcy? So this, he's oh, just quite over a few leveraged. Times. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's very corrupt, but yet here we are in this environment in which the left candidate, well, quote unquote, I'm doing scare quotes because I guess Hillary is not very leftist, couldn't defeat him. So this says something to me. This is not, as far as I'm concerned, this isn't a condemnation on the right in this country. It's a condemnation on the Democrats that they couldn't pull this off. And the fact that they're not doing introspection on this is what wor- is what is very worrisome to me. Because I feel like we're going into 2018 and then to 2020 with um, this sort of hubristic idea that that fuck Trump, part of my French, is is enough of a platform, and it's really not. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, so that's Sam, something which oh, I don't have a good solution to, uh, because it's it's hard when <laughs> when you see somebody who is as, as seems to you as obviously unbelievable as Trump. How do you get, how do you deal with someone who believes them? Mm. Well, I think the way you get at them is by actually coming to grips with the idea that most of this country is invested in the ideas of New Dealism type policy. I think Bernie Sanders would have wiped the floor with Trump. I don't, I don't think that's really, I mean, I know that Clinton and I don't want to believe that, but I don't think it's really up for debate. Every poll had him well, you know, well 10% and higher when Clinton was always in the margin of error. And, you know, yeah. you can maybe poke fun at the fundamentals of the polling, but no, there's just too many polls that showed this for you to completely erase that, um, release, that da- release that data, in my opinion. So I feel that that the way to do this is, is, to, stop, is to stop saying screw Trump and to start talking about policies that, that matter, something that deals with income inequality, Medicare for yeah. all, yeah. you know. I mean, you're in California, right? Yes, I'm in California. So uh, let me ask you a question. Sure. Um, (laughs) What about this business about splitting California into three states? Oh, okay. So I find this to be actually bizarre. So let me, let's go back. This is a good point you're bringing up. In California, we do have direct democracy. So just about anybody that wants to pay signature gatherers, et cetera, can get a proposition on a ballot. That's the way mm-hmm. our state government is set up. So, which is why, you know, you often see things like Prop 8, like we can go down the list of things that have made it onto our ballot. So, so, so this, this idea was, I think, floated originally for the thought that it would get us more Senate seats because there would be more states. Good evening, everyone. I'm Mary with Mary Greeley News. Thank you for joining me. Measure to split California into three states qualifies for November ballot. For the first time since the Civil War, voters across California will decide in November on a proposal to split up the Golden State, potentially remaking it into three new states. An initiative dividing California, pushed by Silicon Valley venture capital investor Tim Draper, received enough signatures to qualify it for the November ballot. More Senate seats because there would be more states. But it really doesn't work for me because at the end of the day, if you look at how they want to break this, I, I, look, I want to, I love my California the way it is. I'm, I'm a native of the state. Um, 
I don't see, you know, we're the fifth, sixth largest economy in the world. We, we screw up a lot. We have a lot of failed neoliberalism in the country. We have a very bad problem with affordable housing and some other things. But I, I don't think that breaking up the state solves anything. And if it gets us more Senate seats, how many of them are going to go to the GOP? Because the way they have the state broken up is sort of gerrymandered to party preference. If you've looked at, you know, the, the election yeah, map. I'm yeah. not, so I'm really not sure what this what this is really yeah. about. I find it bizarre. Yeah. That's just, my, I, I do have progressive friends that think it's a good idea. And I'm like, I really don't get it. <laughs> well, I was, I was just curious because I was uh, one of the founders of the DC statehood party. Um, ah, okay. So working on trying to get statehood for America's most, but here's, here's, here's one of the things I've stumbled across, which I think deserves more attention is that one half of the country lives in nine states which means they have 18 votes in the United States Senate. Mm. Um, and that the old Confederacy, for example, has 22 votes in the Senate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We should be talking more about because it is, I don't have a good solution, but it's something which is really off the track. Sam, I agree with you. So, the, uh, yes, this needs to be addressed. Obviously, the representation right now is absolutely not, in the Senate, is absolutely not... Uh, Equal. But, you know, so the flip side of that, though, is each state has two senators and the House of Representatives is based more on uh, representing state populations. That's the way our founding fathers set Congress up. So, you know, and I also see that there's problems with the Electoral College. But again, this is how our founding fathers set the republic up. My my thoughts on this are complex because I don't I think we have to sort of remember that this is the way the country was set up even if we don't like it so yes we can reform these things to an extent and i think they should be reformed but i'm not sure that whole whole, whole hog abolishment of these things would ever come to fruition i could be wrong on this i'm open to conversation on it for sure but you know what i'm saying yeah yeah well i just raise it as an issue because i don't have any solution but it's I have no. Uh, that California thing is supposed to be a solution to what you're discussing. I think that's their intent, but I don't see how it solves the problem. Mm-hmm. I see the I see the problem clearly, and yes, it absolutely is a problem. It's not right that that uh, these these sections that you're talking about clearly have a, a stronger say than they do for what the population represents. There's no choice about that. But maybe maybe a more viable idea would be to just add uh, one more Senate seat to the to the larger states. So New York gets three, yeah, well, California gets yeah, three. So that would take a constitutional amendment and that would be right. hard to to get through <laughs> given yes. the rules no, of the exactly. game. No, exactly. You see, yeah, it's a problem. I don't no. know. I mean, we're trying to now pass, you know, a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United because that's the one way we um, undo a SCOTUS decision. And, and this absolutely is an uphill battle. Um, I don't know if you've been following the work of American Frog, uh, Promise, but this is something that they've been working on now for a couple of years. I um, I don't know. All I know is that we have to keep fighting the fight. We have to keep uh, pushing forward, and we can't get discouraged because if we do, things absolutely will get worse. Right, right. And and the thing is that uh, you have a community that you may not have discovered. I'm not talking about you, but I mean, listeners, mm-hmm. that that there are people who agree with you who aren't saying so and That's who right. aren't active. 
and how do you get them out there? Uh, and I just give you two examples of things that happened in the 60s that aren't happening today is that that we had music that we shared. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, just the the, um, the civil rights uh, songs for that sort of thing. Uh, and then there were symbols. I mean, I have a I have a uh, a 14 year old granddaughter, and and on the on the door of a bedroom is a peace symbol. And every I time it. I see that, I think I think, my God, haven't we come up with some new symbols since then? <laughs> no. <laughs> so if there are any artists out there, what we need is something equivalent to the peace symbol to get us out of the current mess. You know, that's an interesting and valid point you're making. There is a group called uh, IPM, which is a group of uh, progressive artists that work on creating memes and such. I'm going to task them with what you're talking about right now, because I think that's an interesting point. And I also think music is is a cultural thing that uh, sort of enhances solidarity on a certain level. I just saw Neil Young perform actually a couple weeks ago, and it was so fabulous because there were multi-generations um, watching and from my generation, your generation to young kids, teenagers, and they all sort of had solidarity with solidarity with his political, um, you know, music that clearly when you listen to his, his lyrics, he's, he's discussing progressive things. And um, it was also interesting that his the band itself now was made of Willie Nelson's children. So they're playing guitar and bass. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. For Neil Young. Yeah. So... But I'm all alone at last. 
hope out there, but you're right. I mean, you know. Yeah, another thing we uh, don't have is a counterculture. Yeah. And I, I guess I would say that probably punk rock was uh, sort of our last you know, counterculture. That's right. Uh, and that's another way. Uh, you know, you don't solve these problems all by just dealing with the political issues. But you have to find ways that bring people together. That's right. So, Sam, if uh, if the people want to follow you on you know, various social media, I will put a link to your blog, Progressive uh, Review, in the bio. But if uh, folks want to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? Oh, uh, it's at ProRev, P-R-O-R-E-V. And do you have any new books on the horizon that you wanted to plug? No, I'm a, I'm a recovering author. I'm a re- We can't lose you in the fight, Sam. Keep writing.